Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. And go to chapter 23 with me, Proverbs chapter 23, reading in verse 12. Proverbs 23, verse 12. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. Let's pray. Father, help us now. Uh, We come trusting that these are your words, uh, that they hold for us wisdom that is from above. They hold for us not just common sense that we can see by looking at the world around us, uh, but they hold for us heavenly insight. And so they hold for us life. Would you give us the faith uh, to believe that? Would you give us the humility uh, to open ourselves to what you have to say about family? And give us your wisdom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know the old joke about opinions? Opinions are like belly buttons. Every, everybody has one. Uh, you can say the same thing about families. Right? Families are like belly buttons. Everybody has one. And whether you like it or not, even if you haven't uh, spoken uh, to your family, been in touch with your family in a long time, whether you like it or not, those family relationships are some of the most powerful forces in your life. Modern psychology didn't discover that insight. That insight is right here as 
Proverbs teaches ancient wisdom. The idea that our families shape us in profound ways. Remember that wisdom is learning to be a river. It is learning to flow in the banks of God's design for his creation. We saw that a couple of weeks ago from Proverbs chapter 8. And a core part of God's design for creation are these relationships between husbands and wives, uh, between moms and dads and children and brothers and sisters. Essential to God's design for creation is a design for family. But, as that joke acknowledges, there is within us an ambivalence to these relationships, isn't there? The reality of family is undeniable. The experience of family is complicated. The experience of family is often confusing. The experience of family is sometimes profoundly and devastatingly painful. While family is a part of God's created natural order, often family doesn't feel natural or orderly. Family relationships are not simple. Family relationships are not easy. So we need help. We need help. We need wisdom to know how to live within these relationships. How to live as husbands and wives, moms and dads and children and brothers and sisters. And so we're going to come to Proverbs this morning and try to understand some of what it has to say about these relationships. And while Proverbs does talk about the sibling relationship, I'm going to set that one aside for this morning, just for the sake of focus. And we're going to talk about uh, the spouse relationship and the parental relationship. Okay? So first of all, marriage. When Proverbs talks about marriage, it makes a surprising combination. As Proverbs speaks of marriage, as these wise sages talk about marriage, they combine obligation and ecstasy. Not the drug. All right, that'd be weird. Uh, The experience. Obligation and ecstasy. Now, Now, we don't usually put those two things together. You know, we show up to our commitments at work and school during the week, and then we have our fun on the weekend, right? Our our culture thinks of commitment as undermining and even killing enjoyment, right? But Proverbs has a better imagination. Proverbs imagines a relationship within marriage that combines commitment and enjoyment. It says commitment and enjoyment, they can dance, They can mutually support and reinforce each other. So let's talk about those two sides. Drink water 
from your own cistern. There in Proverbs chapter 5, that is an image of the covenantal obligations of marriage. It acknowledges that, acknowledges that when you enter a marriage relationship, you are entering a lifetime of loyalty. As someone has said, the, the wedding isn't the declaration of present love. It is a promise of future love. Covenantal commitment that should not be broken, apart from a very few exceptions in Scripture, and I'll have time to go there this morning. Okay? That's the commitment side. But then Proverbs Proverbs 5 takes water and goes in a very surprising direction. Because by... Verse 19 of Proverbs chapter 5, it says that water should make you drunk. By verse 19 in Proverbs chapter 5, water has become wine. Be intoxicated always with her love. Be intoxicated always with her love. Married life. This should be covenantal intoxication. Now, that enjoyment, the enjoyment of marriage, as we see in Proverbs, as we see awkwardly in Proverbs chapter 5, it involves sexuality. And Proverbs, along with the rest of Scripture, does place sexuality in the covenant of marriage and limits the practice of sexuality to the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. So the enjoyment of marriage involves sexuality, but it is not limited to sexuality. Proverbs 2, 17 speaks of marriage using a Hebrew word that is translated companion. And it is the closest thing that the Hebrew language gets to the idea of a best friend. So all that we talked about last week with friendship applies to marriage. Marriage, the enjoyment of marriage, should be a a shared life of mutual delight between two people. What Proverbs has to say about marriage reminds me of a woman named Jane, Jane Little. Jane Little was a bassist for the Atlanta Symphony for 71 years. She started playing... In that orchestra, when she was 16, back when you didn't get paid to play in the Atlanta Symphony. And she played in that orchestra for 71 years. 71 years of showing up every day for rehearsal. 71 years of practicing her scales and preparing for performances. Why? Why would someone do that? For the sake of delight. For the beauty and the delight and the pleasure of music. And last May, she died as an 87-year-old on stage doing what she loved. (laughs) Marriage is the commitment to die on stage. It is the commitment to die on stage 
pursuing delight with the one to whom you have made that those promises. The one with whom you have made that covenant. But I see your cynical faces. I see your pained, cynical faces. Because what we have seen of marriage, and often what we have experienced in marriage, seems so far from that vision. It seems that such a distance from that ideal of covenant intoxication. And we do need to understand that Proverbs speaks in ideals. Proverbs often is saying, this is the way it should be. And that's important. We need to understand that as Proverbs speaks to us of ideals, Proverbs is calling us to a path. And so Proverbs holds out to us a vision, a destination, and it doesn't demand of us perfection. It calls us to a process. It invites us onto a road moving towards that vision. So our response to this ideal shouldn't be despair and cynicism because we haven't experienced the perfection of this. But it should be hope. And it should be a willingness to get on the road with wisdom. It should be a willingness to put in the work And it is work to put in the work to walk towards this glorious vision for marriage that this book holds out to us. And I want to mention three steps on this road. Mention three steps that that help us walk towards this ideal. Two of these steps are from Proverbs and one is beyond the book of Proverbs. First step. Choose wisely. Uh, Remember, at the level of literature, the voice of Proverbs is directed to an unmarried young man. It's a book for boys in its literary voice. And so much of what this book has to say about marriage is about that choice. How to make that choice and the consequences of that choice. And my summary of of the message of Proverbs to young people thinking about marriage, making the choice for marriage, my summary of that message is don't choose by sight, choose by vision. Don't choose by sight, choose by vision. Here's what I mean by that. Proverbs says don't choose by the present appearance of physical beauty. Proverbs is not afraid of attraction. It says there should be attraction. But it says be careful about only being attracted to present physical beauty because that's fading. That doesn't last. No, the choice should be made with vision. A vision towards the future. The vision of a life together moving towards wisdom. Quite simply, the the basic qualification that Proverbs would give to one thinking about getting married is choose someone who will walk on that path towards wisdom with you. Who will share 
with you the pursuit of the wise life. Now, once you've made that choice, that's a one-time choice, okay? Once you've made that choice, it's covenant. You're in. You're in. And so, second step, we must not only choose wisely, we must choose daily. We must choose daily. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Notice, that is ongoing. That doesn't say rejoice in your wife when she is young. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice and keep on rejoicing. And that is a daily action. That is a daily pursuit. And notice that it is active Not passive. The stance isn't to your spouse, hey, you meet my needs, and then I'll be happy with you, in you. No, it is active, actively, daily, celebrate the person to whom you are married. Actively, daily, delight in the companion. Who walks on the path with you. And because both parties in the marriage covenant are sinners, that takes forgiveness. And it takes humility. And it takes patience. To delight and keep on delighting. To celebrate and to keep on Celebrating. And listen, it is not, let me say it this way, it is okay to need help with that. It is okay to need help doing that. I need help with that. So avail yourself of resources, certainly of supportive other family members, a supportive Christian church community. Avail yourself of resources uh, like the, the women's morning study is going through Tim and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Great resource. Avail yourself of help of resources like that. Reach out for help. Go to counseling. Counseling can be a really helpful And there's, for some reason, there's some shame attached to that. There's some shame in admitting that we need help and we harm our marriages because we're unwilling to say we need help. It's okay to need help doing this. And don't wait too late to reach out for that help. So many marriages, when they show up to the pastor, or they show up to the counselor, so much damage has been done. And it is very, very difficult to salvage then the relationship. So it's okay to need help. Which leads to my third step. We need not only to choose wisely, to choose daily, but we need to choose dependently. Dependently. Ultimately, dependently on the help of the God who gives himself to us in a covenant 
relationship through His Son Jesus. We need to choose dependently not on the love of that other person, but dependently on the love of the One who loves us like a husband loves a wife only better. That's what Ephesians says about marriage. It says that the point of what Ephesians says about marriage is that even the best marriage is only a hint. It's only a pale glimmer. The love of Christ for His church. In Scripture, wells and wives are often connected. You hear it here in Proverbs 5, right? This image of, of water, of a cistern. Uh, it's, it is in, if, you fo- if you pay attention to the stories in Genesis, wells and wives are often connected. And so it's really interesting that in the Gospel of John, after Jesus in John 2 is at a wedding and turns water into wine, in John 4, he meets a woman at a well. And that woman had lived a failed vision of marriage. She had gone from one relationship to another. And she was living with a man who wasn't her husband. And as Jesus conversed with her, He showed her and He shows us that that movement, that tragic movement of relationships, it is the result of a thirst. It was the result of a thirst to love and be loved that no human relationship can quench. And he says to that woman, and he says to you, I can give you living water. I can give you living water. Husbands, wives, you know what the best thing you can do for your spouse is? It is to take that deep thirst to love and be loved and take it to Jesus and to take it to the well of the gospel. And that is a, mer- that is a message for you no matter your rela- what your relationship to marriage is. <clears throat> whether you are married and it's going well, whether you are married and it's struggling, whether you have found that companionship, whether you have sought that companionship and not yet found it, whether you have found that companionship and lost it, you have a thirst. To love and be loved. And you need to take that thirst to the well of the gospel. There's a, there's a moment in the, in the wedding ceremony that I think is really important. And it's the moment when the couple moves from facing one another... And they turn and they face the congregation. And then they walk out into the world hand in hand. And that, that is symbolic of a truth about marriage. And it is that marriage is not a community unto itself. It is meant to participate in a larger community. It's meant to benefit the wider world. And one of the main ways that marriage benefits the wider world is through the raising of children. And so secondly, let's talk about what Proverbs has to say about the parental relationship. And as with marriage, Proverbs, when it talks about parent-child relationship, it combines surprising things. It says that this relationship should be a relationship of discipline, 
And once again, delight. Discipline and delight. Let's talk about both sides of that. The parental relationship is one of training. It's a relationship of training. The home should be a place that helps a child grow up to be a wise person. Parents, that means your goal isn't control. Your goal isn't to control your children. It is to launch them. Your goal is also not companionship. Don't replace the marriage relationship with a parental relationship. Your goal is not, is not control or companionship. The parental relationship is one of coaching. It's like a coach with his players. You're empowering them to step out of your home and into life. And now, of course, a part of that coaching, a part of that training is correction. And Proverbs talks a lot about correcting children. And it talks about correction with the image of the rod. And I want to make a few comments about this. And I want you, as particularly those of you who are parents with young children, I want us to think very carefully about this. You need to understand that Proverbs doesn't endow spanking with magical power. I don't know how that message got into the American evangelical Christian community, but it has. There's this, there's this idea out there that if you spank your children, they're going to be okay. You know, it has this like magical power. That's not the point of Proverbs. Proverbs is saying children do need correction and that physical discipline can be a part of that correction. Proverbs does not allow, let me make very clear, does not allow for abuse of any kind. In talking about the physical use of dis- or physical discipline in correction. And always remember the goal, as I said, isn't controlled behavior. The goal, and you can hear this in Proverbs 23, the goal is a wise heart. Not controlled behavior, but wise heart. And here's what I think that means, parents. I think that means we have to do the hard, very difficult work of understanding our children and understanding how different kids respond to different approaches to discipline and to correction and to training. Every good coach knows that, right? Every good coach knows that different players respond to different approaches. And so some guys, you need to get up in their face mask and yell at them, right? And then sometimes you have to take a more gentle and a more subtle Approach. It is the same with parenting. We need to learn to understand our children, how they respond to different models of correction, different models of training and discipline. Listen, parents, Scripture gives you authority. Scripture gives parents authority. But it calls you to an affectionate authority. It is not the authority to harm. It is not the authority to be... You remember that colorful term I couldn't use in this context last week? Scriptural authority given to parents isn't, is the, not the authority to be that to your children. And so the call to gentle words, you remember that when we talked about words? How important gentleness was? That applies to us 
as parents, and the way that we approach our kids. Now, this training relationship, kids, let me talk to you for just a moment. I just, I made your parents feel bad, so I'm going to talk to you for just a moment, okay? Here's what Proverbs wants from you. Proverbs wants your ears, and it wants your heart. And it wants your ears, and it wants your heart to be open. And it wants you to turn with open ears and open hearts towards your parents. Most of you have parents who want to try to help you live life well. And so Proverbs wants you to turn your ears and your heart to be responsive to your parents as they try to help you live life well. They're not going to do it perfectly. They're not going to do it perfectly. But God has placed them in your life. And He wants you to listen to them. He wants you to respond to their attempt to train you well. To help you live life in a way that honors God and that benefits your neighbor. So training relationship. But what I've never noticed before, I've seen that before in Proverbs. But this week as I study what Proverbs has to say about parenting, I've never noticed before that how much it talks about delight in the parent-child relationship. Proverbs says that the discipline of that relationship actually begins in delight. Again, it's an affectionate authority. Proverbs 3 says that God disciplines us as His people like a father with His son because... He really doesn't like us? No. He disciplines us because He delights in us. Discipline begins in delight, delight, and then as we read in chapter 23, it ends in delight. Uh, Verse 15 says, Son, when your heart is wise, my heart is glad. The the passage we read ended speaking of your mother. (laughs) And it says, Let... She who bore you, rejoice. It doesn't mean you should do everything you can to make your mom happy. That you always have to please her. That means when there is wisdom involved, the parent-child relationship is one of delight. It's one of enjoyment. It's, It's one of happiness. It's one of pleasure. But once again... I see your cynical faces. I see your cynical and pained faces. Because like with marriage, the parent-child relationship is one that is deeply flawed by sin. Deeply flawed by sin. And so Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. But you know what? That's the way it should be. That's often not the way it is. Sometimes children who are trained in wisdom live in foolishness. And they grieve the heart of their parents. Even the best parents will at times fail in the task of training. Parents, you need to own that. You need to own that you, in some ways, you are going to fail your kids. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And sometimes, sometimes, parents steal hope away from their children. They crush the hope of their children. 
through severe neglect and abuse. And in situations like that, there needs to be distance. There needs to be distance unless there is genuine repentance and change. So the parent-child relationship, as wonderful as it can be at times, it is also deeply flawed and broken by sin. So just like we said with marriage, listen, here's the big guy. There's a, there's a lot more I could say. I'm going on longer than I usually do. I'm rambling a little bit this morning. Yeah, there's a lot more we could say about family. But here's the big idea. In family life, everybody needs Jesus. Okay? Everybody needs Jesus. Okay? We need the God who gives himself to us as a father through his son. We need the God who reveals himself as husband and father through the gift of his son. That is the only hope for family life. So parents, you know the best thing you can do for your children is? It is to become a child yourself. It is to become a child. And to know that God's face is turned towards you. With delight. As a father. The best thing you can do for your children is to put yourself in that gospel scene as the children come to Jesus and He takes them on His lap and He prays for them. That's not just a place to put your children. That is a place to put yourself. To become like a child. But for the love of your father. Kids, whether you're in the house or whether you're grown, and that relationship changes. Like we grow and we, we're not called to obey our parents as we grow. I think it's still a good idea to listen to them, apart from a few exceptions. We don't have to always take their advice. But it is honoring to speak with our parents. But whether you're in the house or you're a grown child, you know what the best thing you can do for your parents is? It is to find a better father. It is to find a better father. And the one who gave his son for you. When we talk about home, we always need to be called to the truer and deeper home in God through Jesus. That is where we will find healing for the failures of our homes. And that is where we will be enabled then to turn to these relationships. And to with grace, forgiveness, and patience, learn to enjoy them. Learn to pursue the delight of these relationships as God has given them to us. Let's pray.